Hey, good morning. Let's stand. this morning that you would hear our voices singing out to you. Lord, we pray that your presence would be in this room and we would know that you're here. And we pray as we sing, Lord, you would be glorified.
life was the cost We stood beneath the dead We could never
staging can be released to your classrooms. Happy first day of spring. Now, sadly, that doesn't really mean that much if you live in Ohio, but it's still, it's the first day of spring. Welcome to everyone here. Welcome to everyone online joining us. Happy to have you with us this morning. Um, just want to give you some announcements. Um, if this is your first time here, please, in front of you in the chair is a little connect card. Um, this is First time or not first time, this is a great way to get information back about Linworth. If it is your first time, go ahead and check that little box and drop it in the box in the um, um, lobby. That's the word. You ever feel like you're like diagonally parked in a parallel universe? It's just, it's been one of those days this morning. Um, but yeah, drop that in the box and we'll get back in touch with you. There's also a welcome center for you to learn more information about the church and get a free gift for, uh, from us. Um, so please do that. Also, if you have any prayer requests, have any questions about the service, again, use the Connect card. You can do it too in the Bible app, so I'll be mentioning the Bible app a couple times as well. Um, great way to get connected and stay connected with what's going on here at the church. So some announcements for you this morning. First of all, Jeremiah's Hope. If you guys, we did a bake sale last weekend. Um, we'll talk about that. So myself, I am... Uh, President of Orphan World Relief and Jeremiah's Hope is one of our partners in Ukraine. I want to give you some updates on them. Um, Wednesday, I believe, of last week, they were able to get the kids evacuated from where they were to a refugee shelter in western Ukraine. The hope is this weekend to get them across the border um, to further safety. The, the amazing thing is that they took the van that the kids were uh, they evacuated them in that was belonged to Jeremiah's Hope. They gave it to some Christian men who are now going into cities and pulling ki uh, kids and families and the elderly uh, out of the cities that are being bombarded by the Russians and pulling them to safety as well. So that, that van continues to get use um, even though Jeremiah's Hope will no longer have it. On Thursday, um, unfortunately the Russians did come and invade the camp and there was no one there, praise God, and they destroyed everything there. And, broke everything down and um, stole what was left from generators to food. Um, so at some point in time, there'll be a rebuilding effort. Uh, hopefully, Lord willing, that'll be sooner rather than later. But Orphan World Relief has already donated $6,000 to them to help them through all of this. And the bake sale raised more than $2,000. So give yourselves a massive hand for that. I admit some of the cookies did not make it home. They got eaten en route, but I live a far away away, so that's, that's why, I, that's my explanation. Um, but just thank you for that, it's such a huge blessing to Jeremiah's Hope and the kids there and the staff there. They actually took duct tape and wrote children on the van so that hopefully that they would bypass the, you know, when the Russians did come across them, they would bypass them, which was successful. So amazing thing there. Next up, Pregnancy Decision Health Center, Bottles for Life fundraiser. Back in the lobby, Anne-Marie is out there from Pregnancy Decision Health Center, PDHC, as well as some of our own Linworth volunteers. Last year, um, members and attenders gave over $1,700 to PDHC. It's a great way to give. You can give directly to them with a check, or you can give online. The information's in the Bible app there as well, but grab a bottle on your way out. You've got about four to six weeks 
uh, to fill the bottle up with change and bring it back here to Linworth. And then finally, Easter weekend. Easter's coming around here soon. It's an amazing time just to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Um, on Sunday, we're going to have an outdoor sunrise service at 6.45 a.m., followed by breakfast. And then we're all going to have two services for Easter, 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., and Cross Crew will be available at the 10 a.m. service. With that said, I'll have Pastor Chris come up. Good morning. We had some remarkable cupcakes from that bake sale. Thanks to Summer Hobbler, chef extraordinaire. Okay. I'd like to start this morning by asking you a question and having you share the answer with your neighbor. Okay, I'm gonna make you work a little bit. What makes an effective leader? What makes an effective leader? Can you put that just into a few words or a phrase? What makes an effective leader? And go ahead and share it with your neighbor, okay? Take about 30 seconds here, share it with your neighbor. What makes an effective leader? Now, I'm going to suppose that some of you maybe said things like the ability to speak well, our charisma, our expertise in some field, or a forceful uh, will, a forceful personality. But many people in different fields agree that the number one trait of effective leaders is the ability to develop those around you, to help them to grow. Why is Ryan Day such an effective coach? Because of his ability to develop quarterbacks. See, even I can say a good thing about Ohio State football. <laughs> On a, a website called The Clearing, a professional business website, they outline the example of Bill Campbell, himself a successful former football coach, who later became an executive and an advisor to many of the prominent leaders in Silicon Valley, including Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs, the, the founders of Twitter, and so forth. He died recently, and his obituary included and reviewed his life work. Bill was known throughout the valley as the coach, the experienced executive who added a touch of humanity. The obit says he was an example of being a servant leader. And he's described as a man who built trust across the hyper-competitive boardrooms in the tech industry by doing surprisingly simple things. He instilled trust through listening and built relationships of candor with some of America's most private leaders. He sacrificed time and energy so that others could be successful. And most impressively, he got a high he got high-performing experts to set aside their egos and work together for common business objectives. He developed others. He was a great leader, according to how those who described 
his life, or the end of his life, at the, at the end of his life. And what I want to say this morning is that God is no less a leader, a great leader, who is passionate and committed to helping you grow and develop your faith. He has a goal to make you like Jesus and to prepare you for serving him in the age to come. Believer in Jesus, you have a glorious destiny and you are being prepared for that. And the more that we understand that vision for the future, the more we can trust what he is doing in our lives today. Today we're gonna meet two people from 1 Kings and though they are far different, they share this goal of God working in their lives to grow their faith. So will you pray with me? And let's ask the Holy Spirit to be in this room and to, to make our hearts wide open to him. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you as a community and we pray that our hearts would be open today to whatever you want to say to us and whatever resources or gifts that you want to give that our hearts would be open to. Lord, if we're apathetic, we'd hear an exhortation this morning. If we're discouraged or troubled or distressed, we would receive comfort this morning. If we are lonely or if we're set apart from others, we would experience affirmation today from you. Might we experience today, Father, all that we need as individuals and as a body. And Father, simply echoing Doug's thoughts, we pray, particularly for the brothers and sisters that we know, not only in Ukraine, but other places around the world that are experiencing profound suffering. We pray today, Lord, that the Spirit of God, the healing Spirit of God, would be near them, meeting those needs in a way that only you can. It's in Christ's name we pray to you, Father, trusting in the work of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, we are in the book of 1 Kings. If you're here for the first time today, we, our practice is just to work through books of the Bible. Uh, that's what we do. We're trying to learn what the Bible says to the end that we could each have an up-close, face-to-face, daily, personal relationship with God. That's the goal. And our title of this series in an Old Testament book is called Faithful or Faithless. It's the book of First and Second Kings, we're doing on First Kings. And keep in mind that this is covering 450 years of Israel's history, roughly between 1000 and 550 BC. And it's not secular history. It is history from God's vantage point. And the book ends with a terrible disaster. In some ways, it's like Russia invading Ukraine. The Jewish homeland is laid to waste by a foreign power. Their temple, the symbol of their identity, is destroyed, and the people are exiled. The impossible has happened, and how could this happen to God's chosen people? 
Well, First and Second Kings seeks to answer that question. And we began with uh, messages about King Solomon, and his life did not end well, and as a result, the nation split into two, Israel to the north, Judea to the south, and Nick covered that division last week in chapter 14. Now, in chapters 15 and 16 then, we have this successive histories of the kings begin. Now, Judah has only two kings in this era, while Israel has six. And those six in Israel were all during the reign of a man named King Asa, who reigned 41 years. Take a look at this slide, if you would. You can see the king of Judah there on the left, and all of those kings on the right served during that reign. To help you understand this, to help you understand this, think of it this way. In Israel, they were going through kings like the Cleveland Browns go through coaches. Right? Does that help you get it? Asa, by the way, was not a, he was a good king, not a perfect king. He received a average to above average grade, though like Solomon, his life did not end well. Now Judah on the, by the way, I'm a Browns fan, so this is terrible to admit. Judah is really like the Pittsburgh Steelers where coaches last a long time. And indeed, Judah had relative peace and stability under King Asa, while at the same time, Israel was unstable and tumultuous as kings came and went in bloody assassinations and massacres. Now, besides Asa, two other characters are worth mentioning in these chapters. We're gonna meet them later. One is named Jehu, who received a prophecy about actually the downfall of Baasha, and then Ahab, who will be a major character next week. Look at what is written about Ahab in chapter 16, beginning in verse 31. And as it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, this is Ahab, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served the Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. You see, Jeroboam, he had stuck with worshiping Yahweh, but compromised. Now a generation later, Ahab has moved way past that. He is actually worshiping a completely different God. The God of their neighbors to the north in Sidon, Baal. And Ahab engages in all of the violence and social evils related to worshiping the Baal. Now, this background is important because it sets up for us the next two chapters, an introduction to a very enigmatic character whose story interrupts the history of the flow of the kings. We're going to cover chapter 17 this week and chapter 18 next week, and we will see that there must be a contest, a confrontation, a civil war between these two gods to see who will prevail, Yahweh or Baal. So that leads us to our text today, chapter 17. Will you stand, please, as we read God's word? 
Uh, if you're following along in our Bible, it's page 298. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Sherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Sherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up. And there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah had said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. All right. What do we have here? It is a divine encounter. Two people who could not be more opposite are brought together. And through the intertwining of their stories, they experience a similar pattern. Here is what I think they experience. One, there's a blessing gained. Two, then there's a blessing lost. And then finally, a new and more glorious blessing is gained. So this will be our outline for this morning. We'll first walk through Elijah and unearth this pattern. Then walk through the widow and unearth her pattern. And finally, we'll ask the question, what difference does it make for us? So where is the blessing gained for Elijah, this prophet? Well, it's in this remarkable provision during a time of extreme drought. He is all he needs. He is safely nestled away in God's witness protection program. He drinks from a brook, or really it's a wadi, which is a dry basin that's filled in by the rains. And then he gets his food from ravens, an, an, an ancient form of DoorDash, right? <laughs> Now, this was a very unusual way for God to provide, given ravens were unclean birds 
according to Jewish law. And they were unclean for good reason. They were scavenger birds, not picky eaters. Roadkill, a favorite. Ravens will eat human trash. And if hungry enough, consume mammal dung. If our dog, Ronnie, rest, may he rest in peace. You know where this is going, don't you? It's a bad place. If he happened to be wandering around in the basement, he found what was to him a delicacy in our cat box. Now, I just can't imagine receiving a meal from him. It's awful. Can you imagine the conversation? Elijah to God. God, ravens, really? Isn't there another candidate from the bird kingdom? I've lost my appetite. And God to Elijah, okay, Elijah, how long can you fast? Well, he's there too long for fasting. But seriously, look at verse six. He went and did according to the word of the Lord. He listened to God and he has all, his, all he needs. He's safe. On top of that, he's in the wilderness, away from the demands of people and ministry and an opportunity to deepen his relationship with the Lord. It is a blessing gained, right? Until we get to verse seven. Where is the blessing lost for Elijah? This same brook, the same provision dries up. God has taken away what he provided. That empty riverbed, once a source of blessing, is now a blessing lost. Frustrated? Maybe? Tempted to doubt? We don't know. But he was a man like we are. What was so wonderfully unique, what was clearly God's provision, is gone. Is God himself absent? Is God holding back in some cruel game? No, look at what happens. What happens is the blessing lost opens the door to his next assignment. Verse 8, God calls him to go to Zarephath, and there I have commanded a widow to feed you. All right. Again, we have to try to understand this. Crawl inside Elijah's shoes. Did I hear you right, God? Or am I missing something? There's a static. One, that's Gentile territory. Out of my comfort zone, right under the nose of a pagan king who's a devoted Baal worshiper. Second, a widow's going to provide for me? Again, remember, this is the ancient world. This poor single mom was not working during the day, attending night classes, and receiving childcare support. No. Hers was an abject, destitute existence, and that was before the drought. There could not have been a more unlikely candidate, a widow living in a pagan land, to provide for his needs. But look at verse 10. We have the simple words. He arose and went to Zarephath. He trusts and he listens to God without receiving any more detail. As one commentator pointed out, who was he to complain? If Yahweh delighted to use an unusual 
and an unlikely source. So, where is a new and more glorious blessing gained for Elijah, the last part of our pattern? Well, not only are his material needs met, but Elijah experiences true spiritual riches. In this divine encounter, he has the opportunity to serve the needy, to love the destitute, and to bring the true salvation from the God of Israel. He asks her in verses 10 and 11, notice what he says. He says, I, I know I'm asking you for a very difficult thing. I just need a little water, just a morsel of bread. No extravagant meal, not even a fast or a frozen pizza, not even fast food, just bread and water in tiny portions. And in her answer, we see the echoes of her situation. I have a handful of flour. A little oil is all I have. As a matter of fact, this fire is going to be so small, I just need a couple of sticks. And then, oh, by the way, Elijah, that's our last meal. There'll be nothing left when we're done. We only expect starvation. Now, we're left to wonder about this widow, aren't we? We're left to wonder a little bit about her life. God sent Elijah to her. And when Jesus commented on this scene early in his ministry, he seems to be indicating that she was a God seeker. Is that what she indicates in verse 12 when she says, as the Lord your God lives? You know, growing up in a world dominated by Baal worship, how disappointing Baal has been. Baal's been slacking on the job lately. Baal was the god of fertility and whose presence was in what? Guess. Yes, in the rain and in the storm. In this way, the Sidonians explained their seasons because the Baal would die over the winter and then would resurrect in the spring. But during the three-year drought, Baal had stayed dead, powerless. And in her confession, as the Lord God lives, does that reflect the spark of hope? That the Lord God does live and is not as dead and impotent as Baal. Well, Elijah responds to her dour report and prediction with an impossible request, right? It's an impossible request that he makes, feed me first. But then there's this promise. Make me a little cake. Make something for you and your son. For that jar of flour and that jug of oil will never go empty. How does she respond? Look at verse 15. She went and did as Elijah had said. Wow. Wow. She took a gamble on believing the word of God. And again, verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord. There was new flour every morning. The empty container was refilled. There was new oil every morning. The empty jug was replenished. God provided for Elijah and he provided for this widow and her son. Yahweh proved to be more powerful than Baal and Elijah tasted a new 
and more glorious blessing. Okay? So that's his story. Blessing received, blessing lost, a new and more glorious blessing gained. Now let's go to her story, okay? Because the widow experiences the same pattern. So go back to your Bibles, if you would, page 299, and let's read what happens to this widow after this amazing, amazing miracle that she's experienced. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin and to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then she stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. God's word. Okay. Where is the blessing gained for the widow? Well, she experienced this amazing divine encounter with Elijah. Her life was on the brink. She was eating her last meal. She was in her final hour. She was in her last minute. The clock was ready to strike 12 and God broke through and saved her and her son, right? What an amazing blessing gained. Where is this blessing lost for the widow? Like the dried up brook. After all this, God, after you show up in such a clear and undeniable way, now you're going to take my son? You saved us for this? And notice here how her faith needs developed. She is worried about the sins of her life, isn't she? She's got a pretty guilty conscience, doesn't she? And she believes that this action has happened somehow in direct result to her own personal sin. Now we can all relate to that, can't we? I, I know that I can. When bad things, when really bad things happen to us, how quickly we assume that we're being, what? Yeah, punished. That somehow the sin within me has brought about this. I deserve this. In her immaturity, in our immaturity, we assume that we know why God does what he does. That we have accurately perceived his intentions. You know, all we do when we do that is we project onto God what we would do if we were him. I've got news for you. 
were not God. And Elijah, look at his part in this. It's interesting. Now, I don't, I don't count this as immaturity. I actually count it as maturity. Look at the honesty when he prays. Elijah is simply praying from his own limited perspective. And I think his faith is a little more developed because it comes out, his prayer comes out in the form of a question rather than an assumption. God, why did you let this happen? Well, the third part of our pattern, where is a new and more glorious blessing gained by the widow? Well, it's pretty obvious. She has seen it firsthand. As my friend Corey pointed out in his commentary on 1 Kings, this is the first recorded resurrection in the Bible. She's seen it. This widow from Zarephath has been chosen to see it. Her son, her son's restored to her. The terrible loss is swallowed up in victory. Baal was unable to come out of the grave. He had no power over nature or over the drought. But God showed her and Elijah his power to defy the inevitable decay of nature and bring resurrection. That's her story. Do you see how their stories are similar? A blessing gained, a blessing lost. They respond in faith and they receive a new and more glorious blessing. Elijah and this widow could not be more different. He's Jewish. She's Gentile. He's a man. She's a woman. He is named. She is unnamed. He was a more mature believer. She's a, a new or young believer, it seems. Yet they both experienced the same pattern. So, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? What do we do with the intertwining of these stories from these different individuals experiencing God working in their lives? Here's the first thing. It's not something to do, but it is something to believe. God is always working to grow our faith. Do you believe that? God is always working to grow our faith. The intertwining of their stories shows God is always working to develop your faith, no matter who you are or where you are from or what place you are on in your spiritual journey. Right? God is always working. I think the question that begs to be answered is this. What do we do when we find ourselves in the middle of the pattern? What happens when the blessing, the provision is lost? What stood out, right? And I tried to emphasize it in our story of how both Elijah, who's more veteran in his faith, and the widow, who's a new believer, do you notice how they both acted on the word of the Lord? They model for us faith at its rawest level. Here's a very simple definition of faith. Faith is staking everything on God's word. For both, this was their gamble. And when the blessing is lost, this is what they are asked to do. This is what we are asked to do when the blessing is lost. 
It means risk. It means staring great loss in the face. It is confronting danger and not backing down. When these things happen to us, when circumstances bring the faith crisis, we're not necessarily outside of God's will. We're often right in the middle of it. And we see this with these two individuals, a great prophet, though enigmatic, a great prophet, significant enough to be with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And alongside of him, an, an unnamed woman at the bottom of the social scale. But nonetheless, she, so prized by God, that God reached out specifically to her. God does love, doesn't he? Not just nations, but one person, one family at a time. And she is regarded enough that her story now is known by everybody who reads the Bible. Jesus mentions her at the inauguration of his ministry. This widow especially lived out what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you have probably thought about this verse as we read it. When she, believing in God's promise, did what? She didn't feed herself first, did she? She fed the prophet first. Look at Matthew 6, verse 30 through 33. Jesus is talking about faith. And he says to his audience, oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But do what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. This is the same thing Elijah said to her. She put God first, not to put God in her, into her debt, but simply trusting him and thus putting herself into a place where she could experience a new and more glorious blessing. So our first way this story impacts us is by believing God is at work even when the blessing is lost. And this bleeds into our second application that faith leads to action. Live by faith by seeking God's kingdom first. Live by faith by seeking God's kingdom first. Let me just tease out three or four different ways this works out in our lives, this seeking the kingdom of God first. It could be putting God first in your finances by giving radically as the scriptures teach by tithing to your local church by giving to worthy causes you know many of us began this practice years ago when we had virtually nothing to spare and there is story after story i could tell you our story there is story after story of god bringing new and more glorious blessings Sometimes materially, sometimes not, but always, always spiritually. You know, we are called as Christians to love and trust God by giving him first of all our wealth. And man, we need this desperately today. More than ever, more than ever, 
we are finding the temptation to find our security in things, in possessions. Another area. You could seek first the kingdom of God by entering into difficult conversations because Jesus calls each and every one of us into the business of peacemaking. Now that's because we sinned, right? And that's because others sin against us. And so we find ourselves continually, right, in this business of peacemaking. Or sometimes we agree to help others reconcile. And in that we risk blame and accusation directed towards us in trying to help others reconcile. Over the last four or five years, it's been a unique ministry that I've been in, sometimes within our church, sometimes within interpersonal relationships, sometimes helping others outside of our church. And I, I would tell you that the business of peacemaking, it is some of the most draining, humbling, stress-inducing, yet rewarding aspects of life and of ministry. When you step into a difficult relationship that is needed and you are transparent, you feel the vulnerability of learning to forgive, right? You know, learning to forgive, I love this simple definition. Learning to forgive is giving up the right to punish someone who has hurt you. That's vulnerability. That's humility. It's the humility of understanding how deeply you have hurt someone else. And saying those words, I'm sorry that I hurt you so badly. When helping others, it is the vulnerability of listening, of not making snap judgments, of not caving into a cheap, unsustainable peace. That too is bearing the cross of Jesus to do that kind of work. But it's putting God first. It's seeking God first. It's acting on what God tells us to do. Here's another example. It could be in the use of your time. In the use of your time, putting God first and thus laying down the right. And here's something that all of us, I think, are tempted with. To believe that we are completely sovereign over our time. Are we really sovereign over our time? You see, seeking God first cannot just be abstract. It has to have a concrete outlet into the real world, like volunteering or taking the risk of greater involvement or stepping up and into leadership. You know, for some of us, we have ample money. Our retirement is sound. We have no major bills. The house might even be paid off. But it is the sovereignty over our time that is most difficult to give up. We don't want any commitments to hold us down. We want to be completely free. But we forget, don't we, the truth that love does what? Love binds us, right? Love binds us to others and to the community of Jesus. Love binds us. We give up our freedom in order to love. This is raw faith. Seeking God first might be communicating your faith in unknown or unfamiliar settings. Recently, Pastor Nick and, and, and Tom Short, Pastor Tom and myself, we were able to attend our pastor's conference, 
which just happened to be in Miami, Florida, which was not bad for February. That was very enjoyable. And on one afternoon, we were encouraged to share our faith at a nearby university called Florida International University, 60,000 students strong. Now, Tom did what he did. He did some open-air communication, open-air preaching, and others of us did what is called whiteboard evangelism, meaning that we set up a sign in the student union with a question about God. And the students will come over to your table. We give them a free slice of pizza for answering the question. Now, let me be honest for a moment. Because I'm not really, a, I'm not a great evangelist by any stretch of the imagination. And I have to tell you that I've had, a lo I've had long difficulty believing that God could really use events like this. I've been skeptical and frankly sometimes just plain down cynical. Could God really, could you really have a meaningful conversation with someone you don't know, you've never met before, about God over a slice of pizza? And I also, by the way, I'm 61, and you're 18. Certainly, there's an age barrier. Now, I'm just being honest with you. I, I, I often have just been convicted that I just, I'm not, I don't believe that God could do uh, or use a situation like that. But in raw faith, seeking first his kingdom, believing God was wanting me to go, I just went not knowing any details, more details of what was going to happen. Let me show you this picture, if I could. Can you see this picture? Okay, those are empty pizza boxes, hot and ready, right? Okay, in each box, there were somewhere between eight and ten slices of pizza. Okay, each slice of pizza represents at least one conversation that we had in about a two and a half or three hour period. Many of those conversations lasted 30 to 45 minutes. Some may have been even longer. Those conversations were marked with genuine spiritual exchange, respect, and goodwill. With many very interested to find out more about the life of God. We went home tired, but filled with joy. These are examples of the ways we can seek God first and his kingdom, believing that all of my needs will be met. Are you in the middle right now of a blessing lost? What is God telling you? What is the Spirit saying to you? That despite that loss, he's saying, stake everything on my word and continue to seek first my kingdom and exercise raw faith and see if I will not add onto you a new and glorious blessing. Okay, just a couple more points here. One more, app, well, two more brief applications. Third, here's something else we learned. I love this. Don't put God in a box as to his method or outcome of how he will provide. The new and glorious blessing may come from an unusual and unlikely source, i.e. a raven and a widow. And the new and glorious blessing, it may look differently than what you expected. 
Notice, God did not show up and provide the widow with like 25 50-pound bags of flour stacked up in her spare room. He did not come and bury in her backyard a thousand-gallon tank of vegetable oil. I mean, that, if it were you, like, wouldn't that feel great, right? Wouldn't you feel so secure? Never have to worry again, right? But what did God do? He gave her only what she needed for that day. You see, we're so bad at this, right? Most of the time we are struggling with regrets from the past or we are struggling with anxiety about the future. Why? Because we want to control the future. We want to control it. We want to control it to avoid what? Pain. We want to control it to avoid insecurity. And so we're either worried about past regrets or we're anxious about the future. And what does God say? Live in the present. Live today. I will provide your needs today. I've not yet given you the grace that you'll need tomorrow. I've given you the grace that you need today. And we see this pattern all throughout the scriptures. It's beautiful. God reminds us in big ways and small ways that he, con he controls the future. So this story, what does it do? It encourages us to believe God is always working to grow our faith. It encourages us to live by faith by seeking God first. It encourages us to not put God in a box as to the method or outcome of how he will provide. And finally, it does this. It does this. It encourages us to believe in the single most glorious blessing that will ever happen to any of us, doesn't it? Because this story points to the ultimate resurrection. The resurrection of the widow's son proved Yahweh's power was greater than Baal's. And it brought unfathomable blessing to this daughter of God. Her temporal loss pressed her to a greater life of faith, but it also proved that God could reach his hands into the abyss of death and pull someone out of it. And so this first resurrection clearly is a foretaste of the future resurrection, Jesus' resurrection. Why? Because this woman would again, what would happen to her? She would again be beset by decay and she would be separated from her son either through her death or his. So what good was it? <laughs> Unless there's a future resurrection where Jesus will pull both of their bodies out of death's trap. The widow believed the promised jar of flour will not be spent and the jug of oil will never be empty. She believed and it changed everything, didn't it? In the same way, believing with raw faith in the promise of being resurrected with Jesus after your death will likewise change everything in your life. The Bible says this, that if you acknowledge, if you believe, if you embrace the idea that Jesus is God, 
Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart, if you believe sincerely that God raised him from the dead, then the promise of God says you will be saved. You will have life in the age to come. You will be resurrected with Jesus. Wouldn't it be awesome if today was the day that you made that decision to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Lord? Nick, why don't you come on up and, and Hannah... Um, go ahead and take your uh, cup with the bread and juice. Go ahead and take the bread. Take the wafer in your hand. As we remember the resurrection, we remember Jesus. It was his death and his sacrifice that made this possible. His, his bread representing his body was given to us to die for the judgment that we deserve. Let's take the bread together. And the cup, the wine, represents his blood, shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of individual sins, the forgiveness of corporate sins, the forgiveness of sins. God forgives us through Christ. And we take the juice as a reminder that this forgiveness is ours. The promise is ours promises ours. He is a God. He is a God who is. He is the God who speaks. And he is the God who makes promises. It's him we celebrate this morning. Let's take the juice together.
this is going to be our last song this morning, and um, this song's just a, just a declaration that we, we need the Lord. And I think just from hearing Chris's message this morning and um, the text that we worked through this morning, it's, it's very clear that, man, uh, apart from God, we are we're lost, we're in trouble. Um, and actually, the Word says, apart from God, we, we, we can't do anything. And so um, this is just a cry out to God that, Lord, we, we need you so much. So.
to invite you back next week. You can read 1 Kings 18 for a little bit of advanced work. One o'clock is our Spanish service. And also, if you RSVP'd for the Get Connected lunch, we're going to meet at about 11.45. It'll be back in this wing, rooms O&P. So again, if you uh, registered for that event, 11.45, rooms O&P. Even though the service is formally ending, our ministry goes on. The ministry of the word, the ministry of prayer, our ministry to one another continues. Um, if you find that you're in that place, that middle place of the blessing lost, a word that often means a lot to me that helps me to characterize what I'm feeling in those moments is the word disoriented. I feel disoriented, not quite sure who I am, not quite sure what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to feel. Things feel upside down. I want to encourage you, if you're in that place right now, that middle place, you can come forward for prayer to be prayed over by a member of our ministry team. You can certainly turn to a friend or a pastor, a small group leader here in the, in the body this morning. But you know, our, our goal every week is to come and have our needs met, to, to walk out of here uh, freshly encouraged and inspired. So if you're experiencing disorientation this morning, reach out to someone. The Spirit of God wants to meet you right where you are and to um, inspire and to encourage and to give you what you need this morning. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. How about a final blessing? May Christ go before you. May Christ go behind, be behind you and above you and below you. May Christ be with you and may Christ, the hope of glory, be in you. May the Spirit of God go with you. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week.